You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to reach into the archives, May of 2016, bring back one of our favorite interviews uh, with Krista Tippett. You know her from On Being on Public Radio and on Utah Public Radio. It's heard uh, Sunday afternoons at 5 here on UPR. Krista Tippett is coming to Utah. She'll be in Logan on Wednesday. That is a presentation in the Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at USU, sponsored by the O.C. Tanner Foundation, the English Department, and Utah Humanities. Uh, it's titled Mystery and Art of Living. Krista Tippett's presentation, 7 p.m., free and open to the public, Wednesday in the Eccles Conference Center on the USU campus. So here's part one of my conversation from May of 2016. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm a person who listens for a living. I listen for wisdom and beauty, and for voices not shouting to be heard. This book chronicles some of what I've learned in what has become a conversation across time and generations, across disciplines and denominations. That's Krista Tippett, host of On Being with Krista Tippett, heard on Utah Public Radio talking about her new book, Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Krista Tippett has interviewed many of the most profound voices examining the great questions of meaning for our time. She's a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster, New York Times best-selling author, and has received the National Humanities Medal at the uh, White House. Uh, Krista Tippett uh, joins us from uh, studios, I believe, in uh, Minneapolis. That's right. Hi, uh, I'm so glad to be with you. Welcome to the program. It's great to, great to talk to you. Um, I'd like to uh, to jump in where I've been reading some other interviews, and I, I, for understandable reasons, this is where <laughs> a lot of people start, I want to jump on that bandwagon. Um, <laughs> the the anger in our politics today, well, and mm-hmm. just in public life, yeah. we seem to be very angry. Um, and I, I want to read this, just a brief section here from your introduction to your book. You say, in America, many features of national public life are better suited to adolescence than adulthood. We don't do things adults learn to do, like calm ourselves and become less narcissistic. You go on to say we reduce great questions to issues, and then you take one side or the other, become polarized. What, what do you make of the, of the anger? Well, I, you know, I want to say that, you know, part of my belief um, and my hope um, is that we, that becoming wise is not something that's just possible for individual human beings, but for us collectively. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of emboldened by ideas that, uh, you know, we can get really discouraged if we think, well, how far, how far we seem to be from, from being collectively wise, but it, but by ideas that we're, you know, that we're in the adolescence of our species. In fact, the, the globe, and I would even say our national political landscape kind of looks like the teenage brain, which is that, you know, there's, there's this incredible capacity for, for progress and innovation and creativity and generativity. And, and then there's, there's also a, a you know, capacity to be reckless and destructive. And all of these things at the same time are the story of us. Um, in terms of the, the anger, um, you know, so that's kind of the big, the big way I, the, the long lens, I think, um, you know, we're not all angry, um, but we are in this all in this moment together where there is just a huge amount of uncertainty um, with, and like these really open questions. And, um, and some of us are on the, on the, the more, uh, the, the side of those open questions and that uncertainty that feels more terrifying. Um, you know, the, the, the economic realities, the, the, the geopolitical realities, Anger, as I see it, is, is, is very often what pain and fear look like when they show themselves in public. So what, I'm, you know, what, I, what I make of anger is that, it, that the anger that's out there that can be so discouraging and in some places is actually, actually dangerous. What I, what I try to do is uh, imagine the, the complexity around that and try to think of ways that each of us, whoever we are, wherever we are, can see beyond the anger where that's possible, where that, to, you know, I think there's a calling right now in our time and in our political life for some of us to be, to be there to calm fear and to attend to pain, just that, because actually in our personal lives, we know that that's the only way you know, that we have to dwell with 
fear, fear and pain in order to walk through them to another place. And we, we don't have much uh, attention span or patience for that kind of move in our public life. But I, I think if we don't learn to do that, we're not going to, you know, like to come back to the mm-hmm. language of your initial question, we're not going to be able to grow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that's important, I think you, you've said, is, is living with the uncertainty. Yeah. These are uncertain times, so living with that, and that's that's hard for us to do, I guess, because of our adolescence. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard for us to do because you know the way we're understanding ourselves scientifically now, we're actually not hardwired to deal with uncertainty. Like we know what to do if you give us a a real enemy and a real crisis and a real fight. Um, the the problem with a lot of our challenges now is none of those things are very clear, you know, and the enemy in some cases is really ourselves. Like we have to figure ourselves out and we have to, to, to interrogate our own culture and a lot of the institutions that just seem to make sense until just a little while ago. You know, the way we'd, we'd created schools and prisons and economies and hospitals and, you know, um, all of those things make sense and none of them make sense right now. It's clear that, that, that we're in this moment of real, change and refashioning of some basic concepts and institutions and technology is playing a huge fast-paced role in that but we don't know what those new forms are going to be and again um for people who are who are um for people who feel more most vulnerable and threatened by that by that uncertainty by that change it, it actually you know our bodies and brains actually send us into a place that where we where our imagination shut down rather than open up right so it's a very complex there's very complex dynamics we're dealing with now that have to do with human physiology as much as they have to do with any kind of political issues or geopolitical realities you uh you wrote i found this hopeful i don't ask you how we get there uh you you ask how can eros become civic in other words how can americans fall back in love with one another as a people with a common fate. How, yeah. how do we do that? Yeah, so so that question emerges out of something I'm hearing in my own conversations, but also in the world at large, which is at the very same time of this phenomenon of kind of, oh, you know, language going feral and, and anger as a kind of recurring quality. Um, there's also this resurfacing of the language of love and a longing for love and a, and a question of, you know, uh, when the best of us shows itself in public, that usually doesn't make the headlines, but that also happens all the time. Um, you know, I would just say, let's look at that moment in Charleston, South Carolina last year, you know, when on the same day, um, a number of you know, wonderful, honorable people were gunned down in their church, and 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 that happened, and and that we analyzed and analyzed, and on the, in the very same moment, you know, family members of people who died, expressed their love and forgiveness for the person who did that. We don't analyze that, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I'd say that is, you know, that that is what um, I, I think for love to to move beyond the way we've watered down that word, and you know, it's mostly a word we talk about when we talk about um, falling in love, and it's about romance, and you know, it's that it's the eros of of the Greek, but the, but there's also there are other words and other forms of love that we don't we don't honor or we're not as intentional about, and you know, the love of friendship and the the practical love of you know, in the Greek it's the agape. And, uh, and, and, um, and so I think the question is, you know, the word itself is not big enough and it's so fraught with, and it's so flimsy in some ways because of the way we use it. But in some ways I feel like, you know, love is the only aspiration big enough for the magnitude of, of challenge that we have. But, but how do we, so the question, you know, let me, we have to live that question. We have to start figuring out what practical love looks like. It's not a way of feeling. It's like, how we are in our in our communities, um, in in in, pol- in new kinds of political and social spaces, we can create. Start having the encounters and conversations we want to be hearing. Given that what's happening at the the you know the level of national political life, in particular, where we've traditionally traditionally wanted to look for aspirational realities to be modeled, it's it's not happening there. But we can't 
we, we have, so we just have to take back the responsibility for creating that. And I think love, you know, in some ways it's an impossible aspiration, uh, but it is something that calls us to our best. And I experience people, and especially younger generations, we want, we are ready to be called to our best and to accompany each other in figuring out what that looks like on the ground. And so it's uh, maybe not looking to the political leaders, it's look, looking to, to who? Looking inside ourselves, looking to each other, taking seriously. You know, I, I, I noticed something we do in this country uh, where we're so riveted on the places. You know, there's this language we have of like above the radar, you know, what we look to. I mean, even the language of the New York Times, which is a newspaper I love. And of course, it you know, continues to be. you know, one of the greatest exemplars we have of what a newspaper is. But this slogan, all the news that's fit to print, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I think in it's the fact that we never that 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 wasn't really questioned. Um, We now we, we tend to look in a few places to be arbiters of what we deem to be important. And I think instinctively we look at what the headlines have told us every day as kind of the bottom line of who we are and what we're up against as a species. But each of us knows um, in our local spaces, you know, we know people, individuals who are living in, in beautiful contrast to those stories of despair and corruption and catastrophe. But we don't treat those as data points. So, you know, one of the, one of the simple starting points I... I really want to advocate for is what I, you know, what I call taking in the good, like seeing the goodness and generativity around us, seeing the capacity for change and for, for meaningful life-giving innovation, and, and, and letting that into our sense of the reality of the world, of ourselves, of our communities, and of what we're capable Can you give me uh, some examples? You, you, you have the extraordinary opportunity to talk to some very interesting people every week. Uh, examples of that that we were just talking about? Um, yeah, well, I, 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 do, I do want to insist that I think every individual can, could, can, could start to draw up their own list. You know, so I can't, I, I don't think, I probably don't know what the most compelling models of that would be, that kind of wisdom embodied that we know in our local spaces for any individual. Um, but for me, um, some of the examples, well, I, you know, I mentioned um, Charleston. Um, you know, I was in Louisville, Kentucky last year where the mayor has kind of posed kind of a, civ- a challenge on a civic scale, which is what, what would it mean to become a city of compassion? And so you have the school system and the religious community and the police force kind of examining that question and coming up with all kinds of kind of innovative responses. Now, this is a long-term project, right? I mean, this is another way we undercut ourselves when we try to be aspirational, but not having a, a realistic and respectful sense of time and how much time, you know, change takes. Um, and how much time we need to, 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 you know, how much patience we need to have with ourselves and others to set really important things in motion. Um, so, you know, those are those are just a couple of examples. Hmm. You, uh, this uh, resonated with me quite a bit. Um, you talk about that in our debates, talking about in the civic life, we're bereft of people who have some questions left. Yes. And then you quote, and I'm not sure, and I'm getting this from an article in the New York Times by Anand Gurdardas, who we've had on this program, um, yep. quoting uh, some questions, some, some good questions. What, what is it in your position that gives you trouble? This is something that a person could ask political life. What is in the position of the other that you're attracted to? Where do you have doubts? Yeah. Those would be powerful questions if they were happening more often. Yes, those are 
so you hear me using the language of questions a lot and living into questions. So, so, so one one thing is that the, and this is this bears us kind of I think examining that we deal in American political life and public life in competing answers. Um, and of course, there's a place for that, but. If, if we acknowledge that the nature of culture right now, of the challenges we face, is really about uncertainty and these vast open questions that aren't going to have answers anytime soon, I, I think we, we get to start answer, uh, honoring questions as, as questions as civic tools. Um, and on, on so many, uh, I really do believe that on any issue, um, on any subject, on any great challenge, um, a, a, you know, left of center and right of center, however you want to define those things. And so, so, yeah, so the other thing we do is we hand the deliberation of those things over to the most extreme positions, right? We set up the polls, and, and, and what we have on the polls that we, that we then pit against each other for our debates um, are people who have absolute certainty, who have absolutely no curiosity left alongside their convictions, no questions left alongside their answers. If they do, they would never reveal it. And they duke it out. Um, the truth is, most of us, again, left of center and right of center, with all our differences intact, have some questions left. And most of us, I really believe most of us, have some curiosity even if it's just like a puzzlement, like what, what, how do those people really think that way, right? Like why, what do they really believe? Um, uh, and also, I believe that in the heart, in the, the, the heart of our, the vast kind of center, I don't, it's not really the center, but left to center and right of center, in that vast middle, um, most of us, if we were, if the opportunity were created, if we created the spaces for this to show itself, we, we, we are grasping or have grasped that we have to create what we want our children to live in together. E- even if all that means right now is that we have some questions in common rather than having answers in common and that we're willing to take those up together. It, you know, it's countercultural what I'm describing, but in some ways if you just think about it, it's very relaxing <laughs> to imagine that there's another way to come at this that doesn't actually need us to... Um, even to compromise in the beginning. It doesn't need us to say, oh, I love the way you think about that, or I like it. it but it, it's another way of thinking about creating common grappling, if not common ground. And I think that, I think we could immediately start to identify that, in, again, in our local spaces where we know, where we'd have ways of finding out who are those kindred, kindred questioners on the other side. Uh, one of the words uh, you've used is curiosity. We, yeah. you know, should be curious about each other. Yeah, uh, it seems like we're uh, uh, trending toward not being curious about each other. Well, and what what I see is that, I, and I don't think there was any great intentional step in this direction, but that for a few generations, maybe coming out of the '60s, I'm not sure where this comes from, but. <clears throat> We've a few generations of us have really been trained to be advocates, right? We are we are taught and we are given skills in how to represent ourselves, to be advocates for our identities, to be advocates for our convictions and the causes we care about. And there is absolutely a need for that in, you know, in civil society. But the muscle we haven't trained or flexed or used is, is also just as essential to the, 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 the larger project of creating common life, you know, of, 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 of creating new realities when, uh, in fact, a lot of the structures and definitions that we came out of the 20th century with we realize aren't big enough. Um, and that work needs us. To, to, to flex this other muscle that is, I don't know if it's a, it's not an enemy to advocacy, but it's, it's a different mood. It's, it's a move. It's a different side of ourselves, which is to be curious about the other person, to be genuinely curious, to really want to know. 
Um, but to to flex that muscle and develop it in our civic life, where we we will we will ha- we will have to really be intentional about that and um, conscious about it and create new kinds of containers where you know where that's what we're deciding to do is be curious rather than be debating because <laughs> that's the mode we we de- default to right yeah that's certainly true. You're listening to Access Utah. You're hearing the familiar voice of Krista Tippett, host of On Being, the Peabody Award-winning public radio program. You hear that on Utah Public Radio Saturday, uh, Sunday afternoons at 5. And Krista Tippett is coming to Logan. Uh, she'll uh, be giving a talk in the Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. That talk is free and open to the public. It's Wednesday evening at 7 in the Eccles Conference Center Auditorium on the USU campus. Krista Tippett's talk, free and open to the public, Wednesday evening at 7, Eccles Conference Center Auditorium on the USU uh, campus. This conversation from May of 2016. More following the break. The composer of this piece gave us a warning. Don't take this music too seriously. It's a piano concerto that's borderline slapstick. A concerto with a lively sense of humor. On the next performance today from APM. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Very pleased to have uh, with me for the hour, Krista Tippett. You recognize her from uh, her uh, popular uh, program on uh, public radio, On Being with Krista Tippett. It's heard on Utah Public Radio Sunday evenings. And uh, her new book is Becoming Wise. Um, We are talking about that on the uh, program today. The subtitle, An Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of uh, Living. Krista Tippett, I'd like to uh, review just a little bit of your personal biography. Very interesting biography. Some you know, fans of the show will be familiar with this, others uh, not. You uh, were born, you say, in, uh, I guess it's Shawnee, Oklahoma. On That's the, right, yep. On the very, in the very moment, approximately, that uh, John F. Kennedy was being elected president. That's right. Well, that was back in the day when... Uh, the election returns were not computerized an instant, right? So I was born like at one in the morning or something as the, those returns were coming in, and as, a, as the news was coming in. Very interesting. I think representative of, of quite a few Americans, uh, your father, I think, was adopted. And so you say the, the history went, you know, father, you, you know, some of the history didn't go back beyond that, at least what you knew. Yes, and and in Oklahoma was a place where where people kind of came fleeing their past, and uh, so it, it, it's a culture without a big historical memory. And then you know within that context, um, you know we were kind of the first generation, you know, of my of my father's. We you know that bloodline was lost, and it's a very it was a very different culture in in that sense too. You know, I think that was all much less organized, and so there weren't ways to trace it, and there wasn't this mentality of of tracing that history. And mm. and also there was a lot of, you know, kind of a lot of mystery and darkness about the, the nature of my father's earliest years. Interesting. And then on the other side, your grandfather was a Baptist preacher? Yeah, Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist, yeah, important, yeah. He would <laughs> so, want me to yes. correct you. <laughs> That's an important distinction, yeah. yes. Yeah. And then you, a girl from Shawnee, Oklahoma, you end up at Brown. Mm-hmm. How, how'd that happen? It was very flukish. Uh, uh, I, I'm sure I would not have ended up at Brown today. Um, I I went to a summer debate camp in Chicago. It's the first time I'd really been outside Oklahoma and met all these kids who'd gone to these great suburban high schools, uh, you know, and had terrific college counseling programs. And um, the, the, just the one I, my friend who I loved the most wanted to go to Brown. I'd never heard of it. Um, and then I, I went back and applied and got in. Um, I'm sure I was the first person who'd ever applied from Shawnee, Oklahoma. And, uh, and you know, they kind of took a chance on me, which was pretty amazing. But it was not a leap that I did a lot of planning or preparation for or really knew what I was getting myself into. 
And then to, to close one loop, uh, was it JFK Jr. was was there at the same yeah, time? So then, yeah. so then, so I, you know, when I was born, my my father was very interested, in, very involved in local politics. Said, you know, when I was born and Kennedy was elected, and he was. Um, uh, had been campaigning for Kennedy, and so he said, you're his good luck charm. And then 18 years later, I end up living in a dormitory with the president's son. With <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was very strange. Then it gets even more interesting. You end up in Germany, Yeah. divided Germany. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I got, I, I was able to take part in this a very unusual exchange program with East Germany, with communist East Germany, and that just, uh, I just got completely fascinated by that division of the world of the, of the 1980s, of the, of the mid-20th century, um, before the wall came down, before the Soviet Union disappeared. Um, and I ended up, you know, ended up then going back to West Germany after college and then going to divided Berlin. And you say, this is very interesting, reading from the introduction to the book, uh, I found myself drawn again and again, almost for sanity's sake, to the East, yeah. where so much more was at stake, and life and mind felt more passionate and vital. You want to say, the, this realization unsettled my sense of personal progress in education. It was possible to have freedom and plenty in the West and craft an empty life. It was possible to have nothing, quote-unquote, in the East, and create a life of beneficy, dignity, and beauty. In, uh, important moment for you. Yes, and... And I was, you know, I was young. I was in my mid-20s. I was very idealistic about politics at that point and thoroughly political. Um, and in some ways, what I, in that, in that an intense place that was divided Berlin, I came face to face with just the, the great, you know, the great question of, of philosophy and, and, and spiritual life, um, uh, this reality in that kind of social laboratory that we are not defined by the circumstances uh, that are given to us, um, that that it is up to us to craft um, our inner lives and um, and our identities on that on that in that very essential level, and that that might or might not have you know for which it was unsettling for me might or might not have anything to do with politics or political change. I mean, of course, that impinges on us, and in very extreme circumstances, it does define people. But um, that is what kind of sent me thinking about, um, you know, asking what I only later call spiritual questions, thinking about theology, and eventually going to divinity school to think this all through. Let's uh, pause, put a pause on the biography there. We have a caller, Cheryl in Providence. Cheryl, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. I have a comment. I just want to take this opportunity to express my gratitude to you, Krista. I'm in my late 70s, and I'm still so pleased that my brain still works and my heart still works. And you had a great influence on how I feel about the world, and I just want to thank you personally. I'm so glad to get to do it rather than writing you an email or a letter. I get to tell you in person. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Cheryl. You know, one of the things I love about our media space, about the, 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 the listeners in our, to our show, is that it's a, it's a very wide generational range. We have a lot of young people, and we... We do, we do. You know, I think that's surprising to some people. It's not surprising to me because, because those are years of intense spiritual searching and inquiry and questions about, you know, asking the big questions and asking about the purpose of your life. And 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 we also have, you know, listeners across the spectrum of age. Um, and and one thing I think that is actually a new phenomenon in the 21st century as we are living longer. Is that is this incredible phenomenon of you know of spiritual searching in 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 your seventies and eighties and nineties when um and, and you know and spiritual searching with this whole this lifetime uh, of of raw materials to work with and that that's new because we we would not have been alive and vital as you say at these ages to, to think of ourselves as seekers, but I think it's a great gift. And I actually think that that, that work and energy um, at later ages is a gift to the young among us. And I, I think that cross-generational conversation is, um, 
is one of the things I most value that I see happening anew. Thank you've just calling. proven that my devotion to your program is well-founded. <laughs> and so you just said a wonderful thing in a few minutes, and the word seeker, I'm, I'm going to apply that to myself. <laughs> it's been surprising to me. Hmm. I thought I would just bake cookies and crochet <laughs> yeah. when I got to be my age, and um, I'm surprised at how interested I am. And uh, So thank you for that word, seeker. I'm going to oh. use it. Okay. <laughs> All right. You. Great to thank meet you. Thank you again. Thank, thanks, Cheryl. Mm-hmm. Glad All you right. called. Uh, we, uh, we do have with us uh, Krista Tippett. Her program uh, On Being with Krista Tippett is heard on Utah Public Radio Sunday evenings. The new book is Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Krista Tippett, I was... Uh, the, the next uh, chapter, I guess, uh, it, back in Germany, is fascinating to me, and it goes back to what we were talking about with, with civic life and the you know, ordinary person. We, you talk about when the wall... The Berlin Wall actually broke November 9th, 1989. And we might think, and I think we do, of Reagan and Gorbachev and, uh, you know, the politicians. But uh, you remind us that it it was the people. Yeah. It really was the people who who had the effect there. And then uh, it was, was, uh, I guess, the trigger point was a a bureaucrat who misspoke at a press conference. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if... I don't really know if that got told because because then when the wall came open and all those people were pouring out, of course, that was the story. But it happened in the most extraordinary, quiet, kind of uh, accidental way. Now, you know, what had to happen, what had happened previously in terms of the political landscape is that, is that uh, you know, that, that the threat which had been so concrete, or it seemed concrete, it was concrete enough to keep that wall in place. You know, the threat that if that was breached, the tanks would roll in, you know. Um, it was a life or death uh, matter. And in the period before the wall came down, when that fear went away because of Gorbachev, because as much as who Gorbachev was, as whatever was happening in his negotiations with you know, the, the United States. Um, it it was so. Then what? So so that's the that that kind of paved the way for what happened on that night. That th- there there was hemorrhaging going on. There were there were East Germans taking refuge in embassies in other countries. Um, but then this bureaucrat who I had actually met when I lived there held this press conference and he. I think what he said is that that they were going to start a system of of giving passports to East German citizens, and that would have been new because nobody had a passport. Um, but he did not say the wall is coming down. <laughs> but because the fear had lifted, um, people just the way my friends told me in East Berlin, people just started pouring, walking out of their buildings and walking towards the wall. And I'm getting chills, actually, as I'm telling it to you, as I did when my friends started telling me, you know, they suddenly looked down on the street. There was no frenzy. Um, there was nothing organized or planned in advance. But, but they, you know, and, they, and so, they just, so, so there's just passing from person to person. You know, where, where are you going? What's going on? And then what the news became of the passports was, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, we're, it's, it's, it's over, you know, it's, we can, we can travel. And so, so what happened is that thousands upon thousands of people walked towards that wall. And in fact, you know, it turned out, which might have, would have been true at any other time, perhaps, that. When you have thousands upon thousands of people walking towards the wall, you know, the, even those border guards with guns, there weren't enough of them to hold that back. And, like, within within a couple of hours, the border guards had joined them. But it was this very organic uh, human event. And it's, you know, to, ha- to know, to love people who are part of that, to be part, to see the world changing like that, like the world changing for so many people. 
I'm sure that's one of the most remarkable things that will happen in my lifetime. Mm. I, you know, I wouldn't expect another um, something that could be so moving again. That's but there's a lot. There's a lot in that story for us, for all of us to take in, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think the bottom line that you know, at in any given moment, there is more change possible than we can imagine. Yeah, I was just going to, uh, you know, to to to, uh, to go there. That's uh, there are lessons there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're listening to Access Utah. We are hearing a conversation I had with Krista Tibbet from May of 2016. Uh, ahead of her uh, visit to Utah, which is on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, um, Krista Tibbet will be in Logan on the campus of Utah State University. She'll be talking uh, to the topic Mystery and Art of Living. That's the uh, subtitle of her book, Becoming Wise. We're talking about the book on the program today. That event is a part of the Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, uh, sponsored by O.C. Tanner Foundation, College of Humanities and Social Sciences at USU English Department and Utah Humanities. And uh, it's free and open to the public. You're invited to uh, come and hear uh, Krista Tippett, 7 p.m. Wednesday, free and open to the public, Eccles Conference Center uh, Auditorium on the USU uh, campus. And we'll have more with Krista Tippett following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Utah Public Radio is everywhere you are with news, information, and musical programming statewide via our six transmitters and 30 translator signals. Worldwide on the web at upr.org and through our new online app. UPR is only a push of the button away. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have with us for the hour, Krista Tippett. Uh, she is a host of On Being with Krista Tippett, heard Sunday evenings on Utah Public Radio. The new book is Becoming Wise. Krista Tippett, uh, you, because through some of these experiences, you decided to get your uh, divinity degree. Then, very interestingly, you uh, ended up doing an oral history project for the Benedictines of St. John's Abbey in, uh, in Minnesota. Uh, some extraordinary people there and extraordinary experiences. What, yes. What took you there? What, <laughs> that doesn't seem like a, a you know, logical progression. I, well, or maybe it well, was. I ca- yeah, I came out of studying theology with, uh, so I'd been a, I had my background was in journalism and diplomacy, and then suddenly I have a Master's of Divinity and um, and ended up in Minnesota, and uh, they had they were doing an oral history project for this for this ecumenical institute, which is not it's one of these places below the radar, you know, like so many places that have changed the world. Um, and they were they were the, the founder was ailing and losing his memory, and so uh, so so that oral history project turned out to be kind of like traipsing through. Uh, the history of um, Christian ecumenism, but also just really Christianity in the 20th century and the opening across boundaries that not that long ago were, you know, unimaginable that they could be crossed, like Catholics and Protestants (laughs) talking about things, you know, and then it widened from there. Um, And so, but it, what was important for that project, you know, now in terms of looking back as a milestone for my life is that it introduced me to the possibility that we could talk about religion and we could talk about our deepest spiritual convictions and uh, honor their integrity and the differences, um, but also celebrate them and learn from each other, um, that that was possible, that it was possible to have that kind of conversation. And that's not, that was not what was happening in the news um, you know, one thing about those that oral history, those conversations with a lot of, I mean, theologians and people who were leaders in many, many different traditions, is that they were intelligent and they were and and they were also warm and funny and full of questions as well as answers, and a great contrast to the way I think religion is often treated in media now, but certainly was treated then. And so that was kind of the seedbed for my idea of a public radio show. Mm-hmm. Yes. Public <laughs> radio right. should be a place that could, could take this up, 
could dare this. Mm-hmm. What were your expectations when you when you started uh, speaking of faith as it was then? I just wanted to crack open that word faith, and um, it had been so. Uh, it had really been like taken hostage by just a few strident voices, a, f- a few. St- and, you know, I don't even want to say a few strains of Christianity. It was really a few voices who had who presumed to speak for all Christians or all religious people or for God. Um, and it, but what is important to me also to add, Thomas, that, you know, I think I think journalists had colluded in that. So it was a convergence of strident voices and 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 media that were willing to give these people the microphones and put the cameras in front of them because they were, you know, they made for great sound bites. They 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 fit comp- very well into that the culture we have of of uh, deliberating on important subjects by competing certainties, and um, but that was really toxic and it really narrowed our cultural imagination about this whole part of life. And there's such uh, fluidity and diversity and richness um, that was left out of that and intellectual content as well as spiritual content, and none of that was really represented in what had become our public political discourse about religion. So I just kind of wanted to make a dent in that. You know, I didn't know, beyond that, I didn't know what was possible, but I thought, you know, we can do something, we can model something different, we can, we can shine a light um, and create a place for different kinds of voices to be heard and to be heard with their integrity intact. That was my, that was my goal. How how is the has the goal changed at all, and how has the conversation changed over time? One important thing that the show changed titles, yeah, uh, became on being. Yeah, well, uh, it's a good question. I our cultural encounter with this has changed. So there's there's been a real evolution of the project, kind of overall, but I think also season to season. I mean, just, you know, speaking of Utah, um, a couple of years ago, or actually three or four years ago, <laughs> when Mitt Romney was running for president, you know, suddenly there was a lot, I mean, suddenly Mormonism was was in, in you know, had cultural attention, and so we did a number of shows kind of drawing out the diversity and complexity within Mormon tradition. Um, uh, after, in the immediate years after 9-11, um, when the show was starting up, we had an evangelical president in the White House. We had, uh, you know, this tragic, uh, catastrophic way that Islam had been introduced to a lot of Americans for the first time. You know, they never thought it, it was already on its way to becoming the world's second largest religion, religion, but this was the way many people first became aware of it. So um, in the early years, we we did a lot of programming on kind of introducing the the complexity and diversity within those traditions but i and then and then there you know we went culturally through the period of the new atheists right do you remember that mm, the yeah. Dawkins and Hitchens and so so there have been all these um these chapters i think and and and, and what i what i'm fascinated by in that one is that um i i think the new new atheist phenomenon was um in part a, a reaction to the the religious stridency that had that had kind of been so dominant in culture, but what I saw happen very quickly and kind of where we are now coming out of that is is so you know is, is kind of a rebalancing and um, one thing that has happened kind of organically across the years with the show is that I've interviewed more and more and more scientists, and uh, I think this is a phenomenon of the 21st century. Uh, especially fields like physics and neuroscience, evolutionary biology, where scientists are standing on ground, they're they're posing questions, they're making discoveries um, that that were, or or even when when their inquiry has nothing to do with with religion, you know, where the, where the scientists themselves may not be religious, they are they are making. Theologically evocative discoveries and having theologically and spiritually evocative insights about questions that were traditionally reserved for theologians and philosophers. You know what? What? What are we? What does it mean to be human? You know where do we come from? Where are we going? And and even 
um, science is illuminating is really in many sentences so with just in increasingly um, complex and interesting ways taking the virtues that our religious traditions have carried forward in time of empathy and compassion and forgiveness um, and and how how to how to be how to be a peaceful presence in the world um, taking those things uh, into into the laboratory and actually looking inside our brains which we can do now and helping us understand um, the sense of some great virtues and and also giving us really practical tools for making things like forgiveness and compassion more possible. So, so right, so all of that that I just described is this rapid kind of, it's a very dynamic space in our collective life. I think we take an expansive view of, um, you know, we, we're, I'm not looking at how we're grappling with questions of meaning just inside theology, I see that happening in many places. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, I think that's the place that the show, that's kind of the perch we've taken. You've, uh, you've written that uh, we haven't, uh, culturally, we, we've had trouble with mystery. Yeah. We, we, we haven't liked mystery. We want to make everything with, you know, clear edges. But that uh, perhaps mystery is making a comeback, and especially with, with you know, scientists who are, perhaps yes. comfortable with mystery. Who have such a robust vocabulary of mystery in particular. But I think in general, scientists are not only comfortable with uh, knowing what they don't know, but intrigued and thrilled by <laughs> to know what they don't know and then to investigate. Um, but to expect new questions to be to emerge from every answer. Uh, I think, uh, and also really have a sense of wonder before mystery, and in this way, I think I think many of the religious among us could learn from uh, that that scientific mindset. Um, I I believe. Well, first of all, I believe that mystery. Yeah, I think in the 20th century, we we really wanted to think that we could that we could create systems and structures, and if we had all the right facts together we could kind of bracket out the irrationality of the human condition and we kind of kind of bracket out mystery and and it, it, it was never true and it was never sustainable and i think in the process we lose a lot of we we lose we stop integrating a lot of what is most strange and interesting about us as as human creatures um i think mystery is a common human experience also i kind of want to demystify it you know being born falling in love dying um these things are mysterious. We are we are mysteries to ourselves, and there is the mystery of the other. Um, so, first of all, just to acknowledge the ordinariness of this, um, and that mystery is in the vocabulary of the religious, but also the non-religious. Hmm. Um, I also think that if we see that mystery is a piece of religious orthodoxy, and it is, you know, at the heart, at the core. The orthodox core of our of our of our of our deep religious traditions, um, we are asked to hold in a kind of creative tension what we can understand in this lifetime and what we can't. I think the real the existence of the religious other is a mystery. Um, but if we can if we decide if we can make that move to honor mystery and have a reverence before it. And I think we can more boldly uh, walk through the world with our convictions intact, with our, with the integrity of the truth that we discern, uh, and and hold that, and and but and and but invite in the mystery of a world of otherness, and and you know, be more at home and at peace with with what we don't, with what we don't know. Just have a couple of minutes left with uh, Krista Tippett. I'm wondering, uh, you're talking about the mystery and, and thinking about the, the those big questions. That's that's what you do on yeah. the on the show. Um, seems like if you if you go out into public life and what we reveal to others, uh, I'm not seeing. You know, there's your show and there's there's some other places in public square grappling with the big questions. I guess my question is: Is do you think it's inevitable? 
whether you show it or not, you, that, that a person has to deal with these questions? Um, well, I think we make it pretty hard to grapple with these questions in public. So you mean kind of the, you know, kind of creating inner life or dealing with mystery? Yeah, I guess for inner life where perhaps yeah. you have to deal with these versus uh, you know, I don't public know. life. I don't I know. Mean, I, I do, even in Divided Berlin, when I was working at that high political level, I, I saw people who I felt had had warded off the work, the, the work of inner life, you know, had, who had great big public lives and incredible, and, and incredible expertise on subjects, uh, you know, like the nuclear arms race, important subjects, but who had put off or neglected the work of inner integrity, of inner life, for so long that really it is kind of withered. And uh, so, you know, I don't want to think that anybody's ever lost, but I think it gets harder the, the, the longer we move through life. Um, but, 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 you know, having said that, I think one of the great, great things we're learning on our fee, on neuroscience in particular is this, this fact that not only are we capable of change and growth across across the lifespan, but that our brains change, and that we they would change our brains by our behavior. And one really concrete piece of learning I take from this idea of neuroplasticity is that just as we know that to throw a ball better or to play an instrument better, to do anything better, we have to practice it. And and that same logic applies to to working on our inner life to, to being, um, to deciding to be more patient or hospitable or loving or compassionate. We don't necessarily have to feel these things or to, to, to feel that we've been especially gifted, uh, born with the capacity for these things, but they are, it is, there's spiritual muscle memory that we can build up. Um, so, you know, so yeah, I think, I think if we don't, use this if we don't cultivate in our life. It's not something that comes automatically, but I do think that this is available to us. And, you know, the good news is that it, that the more you practice, you know, what we practice, we become. We are at the end of the, the time. Krista Tippett uh, is author most recently of Becoming Wise. And uh, her show on being with Krista Tippett is heard on Utah Public Radio. Krista Tippett has joined us uh, from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Krista Tippett. That's from May of 2016. Uh, we rebroadcast that ahead of uh, Krista Tippett's visit to Utah. She is uh, coming to Utah. She'll uh, headline an event Wednesday evening at 7. Uh, that's in the Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Uh, free and open to the public. You're invited. Uh, Wednesday evening, 7 o'clock. Eccles Conference Center Auditorium on the USU campus. Chris Tippett will be speaking to the topic Mystery and the Art of uh, Living. Uh, keynote uh, lecture is at 7 o'clock, followed by a 15-20 minute Q&A with the audience. 8.30 p.m. Reception and book signing, apparently with pie, and books will be available for purchase. We're talking about her book, Becoming Wise, we've been talking about uh, today. So that uh, event, uh, free and open to the public, Wednesday evening at 7, Eccles Conference Center Auditorium on the USU campus. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.